So welcome. We're glad you can be here this morning. These sessions are being uh, videoed, and so they will be available on our website. And so if you want to catch up on that, uh, they'll be available to you uh, for that. So I have the privilege and pleasure of inviting back into this pulpit again my dear friend, Dr. Doug Bookman. And um, if you didn't catch it last night, let me just give you a, a, a clue as to how to listen to my friend here. The clue is to forget about taking any kind of linear, logical note sort of thing. <laughs> Doug has given you everything you need. It's already written down. So, um, so listen and let him take you on the most amazing journey. I just wanted to say, and I, I'm not going to go back here, but for those of you who were not able to be with us last night, uh, let me just say that uh, we started out by looking at a passage in Luke 13 where Jesus makes a stunning promise, and that is he promises to a, uh, uh, to a subcommittee of the Sanhedrin that had come over with murder in their hearts to lure him back into Jerusalem so they could be done with him. Uh, he says, no, no, you're not going to see me until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118, right? And again, if we'd have been there, we'd have thought that's never going to happen, but it did happen. And it happened because Jesus was wise as a serpent, and he planned his travel. First he went and raised Lazarus from the dead, and that just set the whole city of Jerusalem a twitter with the question, uh, is Jesus going to come to the feast? That's explicit in John eleven fifty six. So now some just few weeks later, Jesus, after the, after the uh, raising of Lazarus, Jesus went to a village, very strategically chosen, which was right on the border says uh, on the uh, frontier or something like that, but really it's the border between Judea in the south and Samaria in the north, and he waits, and then, and as I said last night, Jesus was a Galilean Jew. He knew very well the habits of the Galilean Jews when they came up to Passover, and so he goes up, joins one of those bands of Passover pilgrims, makes his way down, all along the way doing miracles, being very much the deliberate provocateur, if you don't mind, uh, but then on Friday afternoon, John 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. He stopped at Bethany, sent those hundreds of people over the hill into Jerusalem bearing this message, Jesus is coming to the feast, and we can be confident he's going to come from Bethany on Sunday morning, because Saturday he wouldn't travel into the city. And uh, so, sure enough, they go out and welcome him on Sunday morning in the triumphal entry, and thus was fulfilled... You know what, I, I, let me do one thing here. <laughs> Thus was fulfilled uh, Jesus' promise that you'll not see me until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let me make, all right, before we start, we're going to have a devotional thought. How about that? Uh, there's one thing I'd like to, there's, there's, a, there's a, if Matthew 23, I'm, I'm thinking here now. Matthew, yes, Matthew 23 uh, Hmm. And verse, I believe it is 31. Uh, no, it's 37. I have no idea why my... Oh, there it is. Good, it's waking up. Matthew 23 and verse 37. Now, for those of you who were last, here last night, I, I, I want to ask you, do these verses sound familiar? Verse 37. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophet, stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers a chick under her wings. You were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I read the whole thing. Does that not sound a lot like Luke 13? It's exactly the same. I don't know if I can get this across to you, but this means so much to me. Here's the difference between Luke 13. These are not parallel passages. That is, this is not two different Gospels telling the same story. This is a different story. Matthew is Tuesday afternoon. Luke is several weeks before the Passover there in Perea. They're not the same passage. And yet, in Luke 13, when those murderous Pharisees came, murdering their heart Pharisees came, Jesus made the promise, you'll not see me until you cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you'd have been there, you'd have said, that's not going to happen. Did it happen? Jesus knows how to make it happen. Now on Tuesday afternoon as he leaves the city for the last time, this is what we're going to talk about in just a moment, but as he leaves the city for the last time under his own power, he's going to return to the city for the triumphal, uh, for the upper room on Thursday, and then he's going to be arrested at Gethsemane. But on, 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 on Tuesday afternoon, Jesus says again, you'll not see me until you welcome me as Messiah. Here's the difference between Luke 13 and Matthew 23. Luke 13 stands fulfilled. We have it in the record. Matthew 23 awaits fulfillment. Now listen, if you'd have been there on Tuesday afternoon, you'd have said... I'm sorry, not Tuesday afternoon. If you'd have been there back in Luke 13, I'm going to say it again. You'd have said, that's not going to happen. Jesus made it happen. I love all things Jewish. I love Israel. But there is a blindness which has come upon Israel, according to Paul. It's staggering. And when you read that right there in Matthew 23, if you know anything about reaching Jewish people, reaching a Hasidic father. You know it's hard to imagine that people welcoming the Messiah. i tell you again, I get wrapped up in this. Jesus knows how to make that happen. God made a promise in Genesis 12. He said, I am going to bring that people to myself. And the more you know about the history of that people and their stubbornness, we're just as stubborn. If it weren't for the Spirit of God, we'd be exact. But you know something about that stubbornness, and, and, and you say, how could God do it? He's going to do it. It's going to involve an end-time drama that is gut-wrenchingly awful. But you know what? If you're here as a believer today, it's because God, praise his name, brought you to the end of yourself. Will you not agree with that? Israel's a stubborn, plucky people. God's going to bring them to the end of themselves. And, and it, it means a great deal to me. Forgive me, I, I get wrapped up in this, but it, it means so much to my heart to realize that God is going to fulfill the promise that Jesus made on Tuesday afternoon. It's not been fulfilled yet, but God's going to fulfill that promise. And, and I take it as something of an Ebenezer, if you know what I, know what I mean. That he made it happen during the Passion Week. He knows how to make it happen again. Amen and amen? All right. Now let's go back to that Passion Week. Uh, 
So, Sunday we refer to as a day of messianic presentation, when Jesus very deliberately, dramatically, in, in fulfillment of three lines of Old Testament prophecy. Now, I wanted to go back to this. If you start there, if you, look, on page six, I give you some maps. You can see that. Actually, helpful. I try to give you some up. On page seven and eight, I give you a couple of charts of the Passion Week, the events of the Passion Week. I, I, thought, I think it's just helpful to have the whole week kind of spread out in front of you. And let me just say this, and I don't want to talk about it, but, uh, well, you know what, Let, let's do this, because I'll get it on the table right now. This chart, not assume, I didn't just pick it out of the air, but this chart is built on the reality, the, 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 the conclusion that Jesus died on a Friday. Now let's talk about this for one minute, all right? If you go to the very last of the notes, and on page uh, 19 and 20, I give you a chart. Now, here's the thing, folks, and just just be patient with me, and and I'm going to kind of grab the high rhetorical ground here. In other words, I'm not going to give anybody an argument, a chance to make their argument, but you probably know that there is a great deal of discussion among the thinking, believing, totally committed to the Bible, Christian world, as to the day of the week on which Jesus died. Some think he died on a Wednesday, some a Thursday, some I I believe Friday. Friday is, for what it's worth, and we don't do theology by consensus, but it is the overwhelming uh, 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 position of, of the whole Christian world. But here's the thing. Let's get it on the table. What is it that's hard about a Friday crucifixion? And, and let me say, every single indication in the record is that he died on a Friday. As a matter of fact, you remember they went and were going to break his knees, and then they found that he was dead because they had to get him off because it says that it was preparation day. Remember that? The Jewish people do not name the days of the week. They number them. Sabbath means seventh. So the days of the week are first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, preparation day, because you get ready for the Sabbath on Friday. So, 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 that's, so every indication is that it, Jesus died on Friday. Well, what's the problem? Come on, talk to me. What's the big issue? Three days and three nights, right? It's a legitimate issue. I don't mean to be dismissive of it. If Jesus died on a Friday, how could you say that he if, if, he, if he was going to be in the tomb three days and three nights, as he twice says with regard to Jonah, then how can he have died on a Friday and rise on a Sunday? All right. If you go to those pages, and I'm, I'm just... I know that this is enough of a discussion that it may be troublesome. Some, so I thought I'd take just this moment. But if you look on page 20, page 20, and what I've tried to do on these charts, and, it, it, you know, do what you will with them later on, but I try and give you the Wednesday uh, position and, and the arguments for it and some people who held it and the Thursday, which is more popular, and the arguments for it and so on, and then the Friday. Don't worry about the two. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the triumphal entry on Sunday at the top of the page. That's, that's the chart. That's the, the chronology we're using. Now look, I go back to the question, if Jesus died on Friday, how can you, and he ro- rose on Sunday, how can that be three days and three nights? There is a quote that I give you here, and it's much bandied about. It's a tremendous help here. Oh, by the way, 42 times in the New Testament, the Bible says that Jesus rode, rose on the third day. 
Remember the guys on the road to Emmaus? Don't you heard? It's now the third day. Uh, you know, on the third day I will rise again. So what we know for sure, because we're biblicists, and we know the Bible is inspired in all of its parts and absolutely true, is that on the third day is another one of, way of saying three days and three nights. Right? Would you agree with that? But that's, now, here is that quote. It's under letter D, under uh, the critique of the view. So you go down about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way down the page. And uh, I give you a quote from Rabbi Eliezer ben Ezariah. I don't think he distinguished himself for anything but this. But this is from the Jewish literature. And notice he's from about, they date him to about the first century, very close to Jesus. And understand, he's not talking about Jesus here. He's not trying to explain anything in the Gospels. In the Talmud, in the Jewish literature, you just have this note by a rabbi who is trying to help people understand the way Jews use the language. And he says, see it there? Uh, I lost it my own self. He says, a day and a night are an onah. That just means, it's a, it, as I say, they're a portion of time. It's a unit of time. A day and a night are an onah, and the portion of an onah is as the whole of it. Do you hear that? So we want to read with our Western modern, you know, highly chronologized life, you know, three days and three nights. That's 72 hours. That's not what he's saying. Does that make sense to you? Any part, a day-night, a day-night is an ona. And any part of the day-night is as the whole. So if Jesus dies on Friday and is the tomb, is in the tomb before the sun goes down, that's a day-night. All of Saturday, Sunday morning, that's a day-night. And now, in point of fact, you can reconcile that to three, day, three days and three nights, or three, let's say it this way, because I think this is the way you ought to read it some portion of three successive day-night units. that make sense to you? Now you can deal with the on the third day. I'll tell you one other thing, too, honestly. Remember I mentioned to you with regard to Lazarus that the protocol was, because of the smell, that you could attend to the body for three days. And the, and, and, and the first day was the day he died, regardless of what time of day. So that day, the next day, by the end of the third day, you had to seal the tomb. That makes sense to you? What were those women going to do on Sunday morning? Remember that? So if he dies on Friday in the tomb, all day Saturday, Sunday morning is the third day, you can still attend to the body. If he dies on Thursday, you've sealed the tomb on Saturday night. That makes sense to you? Now, listen, I'm, I got the microphone, and I know that you... That, that, I was schooled on a Thursday crucifixion. That's what I was taught in the first several years I taught Life of Christ. I taught Thursday. Uh, it, it, it didn't work for me. So, listen, but i got to say this. One is not more biblicist than the other, okay? This is not a question of do you really believe the Bible and so on. This is a fraternal, intramural discussion, and I spent too much time on it. But let's... Let me, let me just say then, so I'm going, I had you on that chart way back there on page, whatever in the world, seven, and then I give you the, the, uh, the kind of just the outline of that chart on page uh, eight. So I'm going to leave that alone now. You come to page, not page eight, page six, and then page seven is where we were last night, actually. So let's pick up the narrative. Way too much messing around here. So here's the deal. Jesus in fulfillment of a promise he had made to those Pharisees in Luke 13 in Perea, and in fulfillment of three very important lines of Old Testament prophecy, and in the most dramatic and deliberate way possible, 
Jesus rides into the city, and the city rises up. Do you remember an Old Testament king? Sometimes I interrupt myself. Do you, do you remember an Old Testament king by the name of Jehu, the hot rider? Jehu was, uh, they said it must be Jehu because he driveth furiously. Uh, you don't have to remember the story. The point is, Jehu was a general in the army of Jeroboam, and a son of the pro- one of the sons of the prophets was dispatched to announce to him that in point of fact, God had chosen him, Jehu, to be the next king. When, this is in, uh, this is in, uh, it'd be, uh, uh, this would be 1 Kings about four, uh, 15, I think. But at any rate, as soon as his, he was the general, as soon as this was announced to his, his soldiers, first thing they did was take off their garments and throw, it down, throw them down in front of their, the, 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 the donkey of the king. That's how you recognize a king. And so when they are waving the palm branches, have you, I really like this uh, cover. Have you noticed that? Have you figured that out? Uh, so Sunday is represented here with the palm branch and so on. We're moving toward Thursday with the upper room. But, but uh, so the Passion Week, and that's what we're talking about, the Passion Week of Jesus And by the way, I like to say it is an eight-day week, bless God. We wouldn't be here if it were a seven-day week, but uh, it's an eight-day week, Sunday to Sunday. And uh, the first Sunday is when Jesus rides into the city, and we're going to call it a day of messianic presentation. Now, I asked the question last night, given Sunday, why Friday? And uh, that is, given the fact that the city welcomes him as king on Sunday, why are they crying for his crucifixion on Friday. Now listen, the short answer is, in my mind, I'll say it this way, if the question is, given Sunday, why Friday? I think the answer is Monday and Tuesday. But I want to, I want to take you to Monday and Tuesday, and I'm going to have to be very quick. And I hate to do it. I was just talking to brother, and, 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 and uh, you know, I've asked this question over the years, or I've made the statement, I guess, over the, question, over the years. If you came to me with, with one free ride on your newly invented time machine, I think I'd dial up Monday and Tuesday. These are some staggering, exciting, dramatic days. And it's, it's hard to even communicate. But we've got to get through the week here this morning, so I'm going to be very quick. But before I do, let me just, I want to, this is necessary background. I want you to go back to page one. And on page one, uh, I never talked to you about this, uh, and I'm not going to spend any time with it now. I just want to pick up on one of them. Some years ago, because God and his sweet and, and inscrutable providences has given me the opportunity to kind of focus on Jesus' life, and I, I, I just, it occurred to me that there are some elements of what the Bible teach, what the Gospels teach, well, the Bible as a whole, but especially the Gospels teach, about the ministry and so on of Jesus, that just some, some, some elements of, of, of what it teaches that are overlooked and important. And I tried to sort of tease these out, and, and you can ponder them for yourself as you have opportunity. But if you look at number six, and I don't know, I could just say this to you, but you got it in front of you. So number six, I say this. Do you have that? Throughout his ministry, as a matter of fact, let me be some kind of teacher here. I'm going to just go down to it and put it on the screen here. It's right here. So, I don't know if you can see it at all. But throughout his ministry, number six there, Jesus employed a remarkable strategy to unmask the superficial and hypocritical nature 
of the public adulation paid him by the multitudes. Could I have said that more clumsily? But, but you hear what I'm saying? That, listen, Jesus didn't have any trouble getting a crowd. You know, the Bible says again and again that during that period of his ministry, when he was so thoroughly and deliberately and strategically saturating the land of the Jews with, the, with his claims concerning himself, and, 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 and the Bible says that everybody who came to him was healed. He didn't put, I always say, some sort of a faithometer on your head, you know, and see if there was enough. If you got to him, he healed you. Think about what that meant for crowd control. And there were these mass, and they were bringing people from afar and so on. So Jesus didn't have any trouble getting a crowd, and he didn't have any trouble thrilling the crowd. That is in terms, I, I think the best word to use with regard to the way the common man felt about this this Nazarene who was going about making staggeringly, staggeringly difficult claims, but healing everybody came. The best word to describe the attitude of the people is fascination. They were fascinated with him. But, and I say as one of these points here, I'm not going to go to it, that that fascination, that public adulation, the fact that everywhere he went, there were these huge crowds and they, they seemed to be totally devoted to him. And, 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 but the point is, that, that public popularity that super it's going to disappear and i'm going to show that to you but that superficial popularity had a really huge impact on jesus ministry number one and i talked to you about this last night it protected him from his enemies you see they couldn't just grab him and haul him off and stone him because there'd be a riot and if there was a riot the romans are going to have to bring in troops from damascus and they didn't want to do that and they were going to find out who who made this mess and heads were going to roll does that make sense to you so number one, Jesus, wild, the wild-eyed popularity of the masses protected Jesus, and he knew it. He was very careful about it. We'll see it. But number two, that wild-eyed popularity totally confused his disciples. Because when he started talking about dying, they couldn't make any sense of this. Everywhere he goes. On Sunday, he rides into town, and, you know, just a few months before the triumphal entry, I talked to you about this last night. Jesus had, about seven months earlier, Jesus had gotten his disciples up to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, 21, and for the first time told them he was going to die. And then he kept saying it again and again. Didn't make any sense to them. But now comes the day, and you remember when they went over to raise, when Jesus took them over to Bethany, they thought they were going to die. Remember Thomas said, well, let's go die with him. And now it's gotten even worse because after Lazarus, the Sanhedrin met, and announced that Jesus was to be arrested. He was a fugitive. And now, now Jesus has, has, has taken his disciples to Ephraim. And now come the day he goes up through Samaria, joins in with his band, the Passover pilgrims, and you make your way down to, to uh, all the way down the rift. But then Jesus goes to Bethany and all those people going. Now you're one of the disciples. I don't think they understood Jesus' strategy here. And you get up in the morning, on Sunday morning, after keeping Shabbat there at, uh, at Lazarus' house, and Jesus sends you up the road and says, there's a man with some donkeys, fetch those donkeys, because Zechariah 9 says he'll come riding on the, a donkey and so on. So in very careful fulfillment of that, by the way, uh, I'll leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, okay, I can't resist that. <laughs> Zechariah says he'll come on you meek and lowly riding on a donkey. We tend to think that the meek and lowly part is the donkey. No, no, that's how 
monarchs, uh, the donkey is a royal steed in this culture. Kings ride on donkeys. And I've seen two or three different explanations. The one that makes the most sense to me is that if you're on a horse, if you're on a stallion, it seems like that's a war animal. And maybe you don't have it. If you're on a donkey, that's just a, a, a you know, steed to travel on, so everything's under control. I don't know. But all throughout the Bible, kings. And I think the point is that Jesus rode in that morning, and it is how do you expect a king to ride into his capital city? You expect military accompaniments, all sorts of royal accoutrements and heralds and runners and so on. He rides in. He's riding a donkey, which is kind of it, but there are other people on donkeys that distinguish him. But, but he rides in, and yet he's meek and lowly, and yet he's received as a king. That's the prophecy. It's staggering. I want to go back to my illustration. You're one of the apostles. You've traveled with him now down to Bethany. You probably, as everybody was going up toward Jerusalem, you're thinking, oh, ho, 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 don't do that, Jesus. That's dangerous. They'll get you there. But no, he turned off to Bethany. Oh, so you spend the weekend there in Bethany, the Saturday. But now, strangely enough, on Sunday morning, he says, fetch that donkey we're going to ride in. So now you're one of the apostles, and you're walking alongside him as he rides in, and maybe you're going to crest the top of the Mount of Olives, and, and just as you start to get to the top, you, you hear a rumble over there. There's a lot of, what's going on over there? Man, this is a lot of activity over there. And you start to think, oh, they're probably getting ready to arrest him. Can you imagine the shock? Now you ride over, and the whole city is worshiping. They're bowing down. They're crying. See, if I'm, if I'm one of the apostles, I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what this dying talk is all about, but this is a good thing. We're on a roll here. See that? They, they, yes, this is, they're receiving him as king. Now, to go a step further, that's on Sunday. Uh, Monday, he returns. Oh, I never finished this thought. I lost my way. Shame on me. I got to do this. I got to do this. The point is that Jesus never had any trouble generating a crowd, an adoring, a superficially adoring crowd. But how? Here's what I want you to see, and this is very important to the dynamic of Monday and Tuesday. When Jesus, he, he developed a strategy of testing, I like to say it this way, and he does this not just with crowds, again and again, when somebody seems willing to give their allegiance to King Jesus, to bow the knee to his claim to be the Messiah deliverer, which is salvific, when somebody seems willing to do that again and again, Jesus will put, I like to say, his finger on the most sensitive spiritual nerve in that person's psyche. He just had a way. See, here, do you get to heaven by selling everything you have and giving to the poor? No. But here comes this rich young ruler. Jesus, and by the way, I'm in the middle of a by the way, I think Jesus, you know, a lot of times when we appeal to omniscience, flip the God switch, that's good, I'm going to use that. Uh, the, when we appeal to, to omniscience, you've got to understand, Jesus was the most blindingly intuitive man who ever lived. He could read you like a book, absent any omniscience. Why? He had a mind unfettered by sin, and more just as importantly, I don't know, I'm not going to taxonomize it, but I'll tell you another important thing. He knew the Bible like no human being ever knew it. How do you rightly assess people? You bring the Bible with you. I think this is what it means when it says Jesus need, had no need anybody to teach because he knew man. How did he know it? 
Study the scriptures. So my point is, here comes this rich young ruler. You and I could have figured out what was important to this guy's life, for heaven's sakes. So he comes and he says, Master, what do I need to be your disciple? He's not telling him the way to get to heaven or the way to get to the kingdom is to sell everything. He's saying, all right, you're going to call me your master? Then this is what I demand of you. Does that make sense to you? I could go through the scriptures again and again and help you. It's, it's a strategy that Jesus had. I'm going to read this point here. It's a little, uh, I don't know. But at any rate, right here. When confronted by shallow Zudo offers. All right, what do I mean by that? It seems like people are willing to follow him, but Jesus, and I think he's testing them. When, 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 when confronted by shallow Zudo, he would speak hard words. Not words that are hard to understand, but words which demanded a choice. All right, now listen. This is so important to what I'm going to, or I'm going to take you. The question before the house, you think I forgot it, is given Sunday, why Friday? I'm arguing that it is Monday and Tuesday. Because Monday and Tuesday are days of messianic proclamation. And what I mean by that is Jesus proclaims the truth concerning himself So on Monday and Tuesday. So, all right, let me say it simply. What happened on Sunday would suggest that this generation was willing to accept him. Jesus is going to assume more dramatically, more authoritatively than ever else in his ministry. He is going to assume the role of Messiah. On Monday morning, he comes into the city and he cleanses the temple for a second time. He had done it earlier. Oh, I'd love to talk to you about this. Maybe we'll in just a minute. But in John chapter 2, on the first of four Passovers in Jesus' ministry, he had cleansed the temple. It was so clever, so strategic. But now he returns. He didn't do it in the intervening years. But now on the fourth Passover of his ministry, that is, this is, this is the last, this is the Passover, which he's going to die. On Monday morning, he clum, comes and clean, he, he cleanses the temple. Now, number one, uh, what to learn from that? Number one, this would have so delighted the people who were in Jerusalem. Look, I give you here some, uh, I don't know how familiar you are. This is the second temple, Herod's uh, remodeling uh, of the second temple. It is huge. It is 35 acres. You can get a, a 250,000 people up there at once. It's the exact same Footprint is what you have today in the Temple Mount, but I haven't got time to get into it. This is a drawing by Lean Ritmar, but this is a model, and, and you can see this huge, these huge areas out here are, are called the Court of the Gentiles, and, and you can get thousands and thousands of people in there, and they did regularly. And, uh, uh, and it was all set up for acoustics and so on. Oh, I'd love to talk to you about it, but I better not. So there... There's a same model. It's a 1 to 50 model that we go see when we're there. But this area out here called the Court of the Gentiles, and it's, it's huge. And Jesus on Tuesday, oh, and, but the point is this, that you see Passover is the only one of the three pilgrimage feasts. Remember Passover, Pente, uh, Pentecost, Tabernacles? The only feast where you have to bring a family sacrifice to the temple. And you have to bring the lamb, and it can only be sacrificed at the temple. And so there were literally hundreds of thousands of people. The estimates are from one to two and a half million people were in Jerusalem at this season. And uh, the rule was, by rabbinical law, because there were so many people, you couldn't have more than 20 or fewer than 10 people feasting on each lamb. 
So there would be literally tens of thousands of lambs slain. But the point is that, that and, and, and might I say just real quickly, when you think of the, of the uh, temple, and even the drawings I give you here, the model, you think of it as sort of a cathedral-like, very pristine, beautiful. It was a slaughterhouse. Every day, tens of thousands of animals slain. And all of that had to be cleaned up. The Levites were bustling about and scooping up everything that could be burned or buried and taking it down to the Jeshimon. And, and the, uh, but whatever had to be washed away was being washed into the Kidron. But the point is that on Passover, you had these tens of thousands of people. So to come back to it, you, you, you couldn't keep Passover without having a lamb to sacrifice, and the priest had to inspect the lamb. And the priest, the chief priest, they're called, we call them the Sadducees generally in extra-biblical literature in the Bible. You'll see them as chief priests. Every time you have this reference to the chief priests, those are the Sadducees. They ran the temple. And they had a good kickback going on here because they refused to accept a lamb that hadn't been bought from a shepherd who was giving them a piece of the action. And to kind of control that, it moved a lot of it inside the temple. Plus, in order to build this marvelous temple, this marvelous second temple that Herod had reconstructed, the Romans had allowed Herod to place a two-day wage temple tax on every Jew in the world. This was the biggest cash cow in the world right here. And, and people always think, well, big deal. How are you going to collect that? You're going to send people? No, you didn't have to collect it. Every little Jewish village all throughout the world every year would collect the temple tax and put it together with a small army, and they'd send it off with great pomp and so on. So the point is that the, Fer the Sadducees, the chief priests who ran the temple, had, had consented to accept, to, 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 to collect the temple tax. But they demanded that it be in local currency, and then they would charge you horrible usurious rates in order to change it. So the point is that the Jewish people despised what went on under the aegis of the Sadducees. And for Jesus now, a second time, to walk in and take a cord and drive, oh, you can't, you can't imagine. The, this is, had you lived in that day, and you'd not see the first time, you would say, this is the most exciting thing I ever saw in my life. I'm trying to think of a parallel. <laughs> I'm a Cubs fan, so okay, 2016, you know, it works for me. But uh, <laughs> who saw that coming? But, but honest to goodness, you, you just can't overstate the drama. Now, after Jesus cleanses the temple, here's where I'm taking you. After he cleanses the temple, then he takes possession of it for two days. And oh, how I'd like to walk you through this. But uh, and the next, the, on Tuesday, so on Monday morning, he comes in, he cleanses the temple. And again, you say to yourself, and it's a legitimate question, how in the world, why didn't somebody, can you imagine how immediately all of these tens and scores of thousands of Jewish pilgrims who despise what goes on in the temple every, 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 all the time, all of a sudden they have this hero, the Nazarene has done it again. You couldn't touch him. Hey, he was, he was anybody, the, 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 the crowds would have risen up in a, in a riot. So now Jesus goes back to Bethany. By the way, i got to say, remember, Jesus is a fugitive. This is so clever. Listen, in, near, near Eastern, in the Near Eastern world, in, in, in that part of the world, in that culture, if I, and hospitality is a big thing in this culture, big thing, but it doesn't mean just sharing lunch with somebody. It's that too, but it means caring for somebody, taking them into your home. If I take you into my home, I am absolutely duty-bound, and I would... Pay any price to keep you secure. 
You become my personal responsibility. It's exactly the same today in that culture. And uh, you know what? This shows up a couple of times in the Bible, and it kind of is hard on us. You remember Lot offering his daughters? Remember that? He said, who would do that? You have it again in Judges 19 when you have this uh, thing in Gibeah where, where uh, yeah, I, I won't get into it, but at any rate, the people are banging down the door, and the man who is a host offers his daughter, and the, 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 the Levite offers his concubine. This is the most stinking up the countryside story in the Old Testament, practically. But, but the point is that that is part of the code. By the way, so I say again, if I take you into my home, if I give you shelter, I'll surrender my life, my family's life, my fortune to keep you safe. This is what's behind that verse. You've got to read this verse in that context. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've accepted me, your host. I can trust you. Does that make sense to you? That's what's at stake in that verse. Now, I say that because Jesus, Bethany is right on the main road. There's always going to be a huge amount of people on that road. And, and once he gets into that village, that village loves Jesus. So it's so clever that every night Jesus goes back to Bethany where he's going to be secure and uh, file that away. But at any rate, the point is, on Tuesday morning, or I've lost you, Monday and Tuesday, days of messianic proclamation, Jesus cleanses the temple on Tuesday morning, comes back into the city, takes possession of the temple mount. I don't even know exactly what that looked like. Mark says that Jesus would not so much as allow a man to carry a vessel of water across the temple courts. It seems like you know, we're trying to cut, cut off, uh, you know, take a shortcut. Jesus somehow, now listen folks, every Jew understands that when Messiah comes, he will rule from the temple. The message, Malachi 3.1, the messenger of the covenant will come suddenly to his temple. Ezekiel 40 to 48 has Messiah ruling in the temple. Everybody knows Jesus never behaved more messianically than these two days. And of course, what happens is his enemies come and I like to say, in our culture, if you want to prove you're a man among men, you know, you're the biggest, baddest guy in the room, what do you got to do? I don't know, or beat everybody in arm wrestling or something. In that culture, you want to prove that you're a man among men, you silence your enemy in open debate. This is really exciting stuff. I haven't got time to Well, real quickly, here come the Sadducees. I'm just going to tell you the story. Here come the Sadducees. Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Now, the Sadducees run. This is their, and by the way, this is their payday. This is when they they are taking in the most money, and Jesus shut them down for two days in the high days of Passover. Oh, they're angry. But I'm going to tell you something. Jesus' enemies, both Pharisee and Sadducee, know that they can't simply haul him off and stone him. There will be a riot. So what does that mean? They have to get the Romans to do their dirty work. How are they going to do that? They have to persuade the Romans, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, that Jesus is a seditionist. But Jesus is wise as a serpent. And so even though he had taken every conceivable Old Testament passage to himself to prove that he was the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, cleverly enough, never uses the word Messiah of himself. Because... He knew it would just arm his enemies. That makes sense to you? Messiah means king. Doesn't necessarily mean that like it does to the Jews in your mind, but it means king. And that's what the Romans would not tolerate. So it's getting very complicated here, isn't it? It's just simple. That here come the Sadducees. They really have a 
there's more to it than strikes that than you, see, you, you see immediately because they say, it sounds almost like peak. Who gave you charge? Who do you think you are? Because they come and they say, by what authority do you take over the Temple Mount? And you remember what Jesus, and they want him, they want him desperately to say, I'm your Messiah. I have a right, and it would be true that if he is Messiah, but if they hear him say, I am Messiah, straight to Pilate. We got him. He claims to be a king. It's Passover. You got to do something about it. Does that make sense to you? Jesus is so clever. Oh, I love this. He says to them, oh, I could walk you through this so much more thoroughly, but because this is rabbinical reasoning. This is how you argue in a rabbinical setting. And so Jesus says, all right, I'll answer your question with a question. The baptism of John, was it of heaven or was it of men? That seems entirely like a nonsense. Where'd that come from, right? Oh, no. Because the Sadducees step over and they say, now, wait a minute here. This is all very public. Tens of thousands of people hearing every word. And they say, if we say, he asked, is the baptism of John, is it of heaven or men? If we say it's of heaven, well, then we got our answer. We're asking by what authority, and John announced him as Messiah, and if John was really legit, then he's clearly Messiah. We got our answer. But if we say John's baptism was of men, these people will stone us. They love John the Baptist. And so now they go back very publicly and they say, Master, we have no answer. The place would have erupted. There would have been huzzas and cheers. In one swing, he had knocked out his opposition. This is dramatic stuff. You have the same thing with the Pharisees, with their, you know, the woman with the, I'm sorry, the Pharisees come, you know, pay tribute to Caesar or not, pulls out that coin. And what do the Pharisees say? Master, you've spoken well. We got no answer. Oh. And then the Sadducees with their little woman with the seven husbands and so on. I always think she was poisoned in the soup, you know what I'm saying? But, but, uh, but the point is that, it was an imaginary story, but the point is that, uh, uh, again, he answers them right out. Oh, I'd love to get into it. But the point is, what you see happening there as the people watch, this is more than one man pro- proving more able rhetorically than others. This is Messiah. He is demonstrating the kind of grip on the Bible and the kind of mental acumen. And so just what you expect of the, of the Messiah, this Solomon-like wisdom that, that we would anticipate a Messiah. So my point is, Jesus comes back on Monday morning. He, he pronounces these, uh, uh, he, he puts his enemies to silence. He, pronounce, he, he, he speaks these parables that are so important. He goes to Psalm 110. But now I've got to take you to Matthew chapter 23. And this, if you go to, uh, back to the notes, and page uh, 10, and I, I, I just put this in a box to, uh, I've, I've taken it through a lot of stuff, and, and, and if, if, if the, there's interest in, uh, go back over this stuff and kind of sort it all out. But this scene in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew 23, I'm sorry, is absolutely It's so huge because, now again, let's set the scene. Matter of fact, let me say this first. 10.30-ish, okay. Let me say this. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Everybody who studies the Sermon on the Mount thinks he understands it better than anybody else, and I'm probably no exception, you know what I'm saying? But this, what's happening here, I want you to see that Jesus has, you know what, i got to back up one more. Understand, understand this, that the people, I said this last night, revered the Pharisees. Number one, the Pharisees taught that God had given the law 
as a means of gaining entrance to the kingdom. Now they made much of God's grace, but what they believed was that Yahweh is so gracious that he's given us the law, and all we got to do is keep the law, and we will be given entrance into the kingdom. You think of dying and go to heaven. It's better to think of entrance into the kingdom. That's where human history is headed, all right? But the point is, the Pharisees were full-time, 24-7 law keepers. That's what they did. They didn't, they didn't work. They, they, just, they, they gave themselves to the study of the law. And, and they were always looking for some way in which they could be more fastidious, more careful than anybody ever had before. And, and, and the, the common attitude was that in some sense, they were doing that on your behalf. The likelihood that you would get into the kingdom is enhanced by the fact that in your community are these full-time law keepers, and you give alms to help them live. So the, the, they, they, the, 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 the Pharisees were revered by the common man, but they were also feared by the common man. Because if the Sadducees ran the temple, which they did, the Pharisees ran the synagogue. And your whole life was wrapped up in this synagogue. And you probably had built your home where you did, so you were within, uh, close enough that you could go to, sh- to, to, to the synagogue on Shabbat. And it was not a church, it wasn't a temple, your whole life, it was a gathering of everything. And if you made your Pharisee mad, he could kick you out of the synagogue. Remember that, John chapter 9? He kicked them out of, that was huge. Oh, that was awful. I always say, don't go getting yourself kicked out of, Foothill Bible Church, but we're talking about, you know, kind of a different order of magnitude as far as what your life is going to be like. You're going to have to find another village and so on. So my point is that the Pharisees were, on the one hand, they were revered and feared by the people. On the other hand, they taught that the means of assuring yourself of interest in the kingdom is keeping the law. Jesus came to... So my point is the Pharisees were just the perfect foil against which Jesus could cast himself. Now, in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, it begins, or the key verse almost everybody will acknowledge, is Matthew 5. All right, I'm, I'm shifting gears here. Go back to the middle of the, the Galilean ministry. Jesus up in Galilee. I can take you to the hillside, I think, where he stood. And, uh, and thousands of people out there. That morning he had been healing, and there were people in that crowd who had just recently taken their crutches and broken them over their knee. There were people in that crowd who could see, who couldn't make their way there that morning. And now Jesus, because they're, they refuse the shepherd God has offered, goes up, and, and you've got to always say, I wanna, I'm going to bring the, one more step of this. When you think of the Sermon on the Mount, I've asked you, this is a violent shift of you know, gears here, but when you think of the Sermon on the Mount, you really want to understand the, the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the grand key to understanding it. Picture Jesus pointing. Because down there, here are all these people, and over here is this little gaggle of Pharisees. And I can say, they're blue as, you can see them a mile off, and they are mad. And this is what Jesus says. Here are these thousands of people. Here's this little gaggle of Pharisees. I don't know for sure if there's a gaggle, but I think he's pointing. But anyway, he points at them, and he says, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never glimpse the kingdom of God. Those are fighting words. There would have been a gasp that went up from the crowd. And, 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 and then he goes on. And the whole sermon, uh, the whole sermon is, remember how often he says, you've heard it said from old. You've heard it said. 
picks, they say unto you, but I say unto you. They say unto you, and then he gets to the end, picture him pointing. There's a narrow, there's a, there, there's a broad way, help yourself. Straight to destruction, but there's a narrow way. You can build your house on the sand, help yourself, or you can build your house. See what he's doing? He's saying it's me or the Pharisees. Now, given that culture, given that religious setting, given the, the, the role that the Pharisees played, this is a remarkably effective rhetorical strategy to test whether or not those people who seem willing to follow you are willing. And the question is simply this, will you abandon? It's going to cost you something. They can toss you out of the city. Are you willing to do it? Because that's a lie. That's a soul-damning lie. Are you willing to turn? You're not going to have me without turning your back on them. That's exactly what Jesus does. Now go to Matthew chapter 23. And remember that this is, this is Tuesday morning. Jesus, no, it's Tuesday afternoon. Jesus has spent the day contesting. They have come and tried to catch him in his words. But here's the thing. Jesus was as much accosted by the Sadducees, that is the chief priests who were in the temple, as he was by the Pharisees and their scribes. That's all one group. And yet Jesus never mentions the Sadducees. Listen to what he says. Jesus, beginning in verse 23, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, whatever they tell you to observe, uh, do it, but do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. And then he goes on, and you have these woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe is a prophetic word that is almost you, always used of a prophetic diatribe against some Gentile Yahweh-rejecting nation who troubles Israel. For him to use this term against you can't overstate the drama of this. A huge crowd. And again, picture him pointing here in Matthew 23. It's Tuesday afternoon. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You shut up. You know, one of the ways Edersheim says, and I still trust Edersheim. Edersheim says that one of the ways in which the Pharisees like to refer to one another, they call themselves the gatekeepers. And what they meant by that is, not only are we certain to get into the kingdom because we keep the law so carefully, but... We know the law so well that God is going to give us the duty of standing at the gate and deciding who else gets in. And now Jesus says, you shut up the kingdom. You're not going in yourselves. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. I'll drop down to verse 15. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte. When he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Those are fighting words. Wouldn't you agree? You've got to put it in this milieu where these people who on Sunday, because it didn't cost them anything, threw their garments down. And I'm asking the question, given Sunday, why Friday? And the answer, given Jesus' habits of mind and rhetoric, what he's doing is driving a wedge between himself and the Pharisee and saying, can you make a choice? that makes sense to you? I've got to be quick. Woe unto you blind guides. Uh, uh, you hypocrite, again and again. And I've got to say again, he never mentions the Sadducees. Is that because the Sadducees weren't skunks? No. It was because nobody wanted to be like the Sadducees. The issue here, they hated the Sadducees. The issue here is everybody thinks that the scribes and the Pharisees are the key to the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, you make a choice. Woe to you, scribes. I like this down here where he says, uh, uh, quit that for me. He says, uh, right here, you are like whitewashed tombs. You see, if you rubbed up against a, a tomb, and, 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 and Jewish folk normally buried just in the, uh, somewhere in the back 40. So uh, they have a cave somewhere in their property, and, and, 
And maybe that cave tomb with the, with the rolling stone hadn't been used and had grown up and so on. That is, it had a lot of brush around it and so on. It hadn't been used for a lot of years. And now you're making your way up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And you think, I'm going to rest for a while. And you go over and sit by a hill somewhere. And somebody comes along and says, hey, I hate to be the guy to tell you, but you're leaning up against granddaddy's tomb. And now <coughs> you're unclean. You can't go to Passover. So the... The rabbis had insisted that at, it was a rabbinical dictum, that at Passover season, you go out and whitewash your tomb. So you just clean it out and spread it out so people would know not to go get up against it. But if you do get up against it, you become a stench. You know what, by the way? The Jews are not good at abstract thinking. They tend to think in kind of, and when you read in the Bible about people who are impure, ceremonially impure, it means you stink. You don't like to have people around stink, right? Neither does God. So if you're impure, you're a stench in God's nostrils. Imagine Jesus. Here are the Pharisees. Woe unto you, scribes. You're like so many, and I think he could probably sweep his hand across the horizon because the hills around Jerusalem were dotted with tombs. Say, you're like so many whited sepulchers. You look nice, you kind of gleam in the sun, but men just brush up against you and they become a stench in God's nostrils. Folks, these are fighting words. This is amazing. These are not words calculated to endear Jesus to the Pharisaic fraternity, but they are words deliberately calculated to drive the people to a decision. He winds up by saying, you brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now, I've got to be much quicker than I've been, so let me just say this. This is Tuesday. With those words, that's the last public discourse of Jesus. The last time he speaks publicly is to pronounce this series of scathing, withering, incriminating woes upon the Pharisees. Now he goes back to Bethany. Along the way, very quickly, his disciples, as they crest the top of the Mount of Olives, they ask a question about the second coming. He preaches the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Then he goes back to Bethany. But folks, he has left this city with a decision. And the city, the, the decision basically is this. It's me or the Pharisees. Sunday was fine, but I'm telling you, you don't hear. This is what I like to say. Am I making sense to you? Honestly. Given Sunday, why Friday? And people miss this dynamic. But the fact is, it's a standard rhetorical strategy of Jesus. And what he is saying is, I like to say it this way. The message of Sunday, oh, it's a blessed message. As Jesus presents himself as the long-awaited deliverer of Genesis 3, the message of Sunday is Jesus offers himself as your deliverer, your savior. He's qualified to do it. Lines of Old Testament prophecy are being fulfilled right there. Sunday tells you Jesus offers himself as your deliverer. The message of Monday and Tuesday is this. You don't take Jesus on your terms. You take him on his terms. And his terms demand you're not trusting in self-righteousness. You're not trusting in anything you could do. You're entirely entrusting yourself to him. Does that make sense to you? That's exactly, I think, given Sunday. Now, this city, interestingly enough, with all of the excitement, just think about it, Sunday, the triumphal entry, Monday and Tuesday as he cleanses the temple, and then you watch and hurrah him as he puts to silence his enemies and so on. But now you go home that afternoon, you're pretty sobered. You're thinking, man, he's asking a lot of us. 
we have to turn our back on it. And there's more than just what they might, there's, there's, there's human pride. There's, there's Isaiah 14 at stake here. And so one by one, house by house, they ponder it. Are we willing to go this far? You know, we like to have him deliver. Here's what's at stake, by the way, I think. That generation of Israel was willing to accept Jesus as their deliverer from Rome. Because they knew they couldn't deliver themselves from Rome. But when it came, this is the Pharisees, to accepting him as their only hope of deliverance from sin, they don't want to go there because they got that covered. They know they can't deliver themselves from Rome, but they think, hey, we got the sin business covered because we got the Pharisees. We got their, their gospel. So I would say that Sunday seems like they're willing to accept him. Day of Messianic presentation, Monday and Tuesday, Jesus drives them to a decision. It's going to be me or the Pharisees. You're going to trust in me. You're going to turn your back on the Pharisees. And they have two or three days to ponder that. And then on Friday morning, and we need to get here very early, they wake up to the astounding news that this Nazarene, whom they had welcomed as king on, on Sunday, is on trial for his life before Pilate. It's about 4.35, 5.30 in the morning, and they scurry out to that place, and Pilate looks at him and then says, who would you have me give you, Jesus or Barabbas? And the city announces its verdict. Give us Barabbas. Does that make sense to you? That's the spiritual dynamic that's at stake. Now I've got to be really quick. Hold on for your dear life. That's Tuesday. Now on Tuesday night, and I'm not going to unfold this, but on Tuesday night, but it is hugely important. As a matter of fact, go to Mark 14. I'm going to take you to Mark 14 just quickly. And there's so much about this that is hugely fascinating, but I, 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 we've got to be very quick. But suffice it to say that on Tuesday night, and both Matthew and Mark and Luke make it clear that it was Tuesday night, and, 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 and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who had previously despised one another and couldn't agree on anything, but they agreed on this, we've got to be rid of this Nazarene. So they gather on Tuesday night at, at the home of, a, of Caiaphas. It's a personal home to the south of the city on a place called the Hill of Evil Council. We go there when we're in Israel and uh, have fun with the fact that what dominates the Hill of Evil Council today is, you remember? The UN? So I, I, God's got a sense of humor, for heaven's sakes. But, uh, but the point is that it's called the Hill of Evil Council because that's where Judas went to make this bargain. So on Tuesday night, Judas goes, and, and this is what you've got to understand. The enemies of Jesus, it says explicitly right here, that they were determined to put him, put him to death, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar. So you hear it there? So it's Tuesday night. Imagine what's happened Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. They are glow-in-the-dark purple with hatred. They are they're, 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 they're rendered somewhat insane. I won't go anywhere with that. But the point is that, that they gather, but they confess. They throw their hands in the air, and they say, what are we going to do? We can't do it because there will be a riot and our heads will roll. But then, and the, the, the way both Matthew and Mark tells the story is very interesting here, but we haven't got time. But the point is, oh, come on. Right here. In verse 10, it says, then Judas Iscariot came. By the way, what was Judas hired to do? There's a lot of confusion about this. There is this idea that Judas, and it's very, it's wrong and it's just popular, but I mean, it's just, it's a superficial reading. There is the idea that Judas was hired to identify Jesus. 
Like, they wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Now, that doesn't make any sense. Think about it. There's not a set of human features which is more thoroughly known in this culture. But the, 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 the Romans did not allow the Jewish people, or any of their peoples, any, any sort of arms. So they had to borrow Roman soldiers. So when, when Judas goes out to arrest Jesus on Thursday night, it is... Uh, uh, the kiss is for the soldiers. Does that make sense to you? Now, what was Judas hired to do? It couldn't be more explicit. You know where it's explicit, though? Shame on me. Is in Luke 22. Let me just tell you. In Luke 22, it says this. Verse 6. You can, you can find it. Luke 22, 6. So they gave him money, and he promised to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Now, just get this. Tuesday night. The Pharisees and Sadducees gather together. They are angry. They need to be rid of Jesus, but they don't know how to do it. Along comes Judas. I can help you arrest him in the absence of the multitude. Now, the point is not that I'm going to follow him along when there's nobody around. I'll give you a quick call on the cell phone or something. That doesn't work. What he is saying is, I know the next time he's going to be in the absence of the multitude, he'll be at the Passover, which is two nights away. So a huge plot, get this, is laid in place late on Tuesday to have Jesus arrested in connection with the Passover supper. And the plot demands that Jesus be arrested, tried, sentenced, and on his way to execution while the city sleeps. That's all that's staying on here, going on here, because the, the Jesus' enemies got Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday ringing in their ears. And they're, they're convinced with good reason. They don't understand the dynamics of Tuesday afternoon and the woes upon the Pharisees. They're fully convinced that this city loves Jesus. And there will be a riot if they wake up to find him. So they've got to get it done before the city wakes up. That makes sense to you? All right, now jump ahead. That's Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday is, is a silent day by my lights, and I was going to talk about it. But let me just take you to Thursday afternoon. So if in your notes there... You jump over to page 11, and I'm not going to follow the notes over much. Uh, they're pretty well laid out for you, but let me just walk you through, and I think to do this, what I will do is, uh, is give you the map. Now, you have this map. Uh, I've got to jump ahead. I had all this stuff I was going to talk about. Imagine me. I was smoking a controlled substance, I think, but there. This map, which you have in your notes, so I can, I can sort of uh, uh, highlight some things, but on page 16, you have that same map. And let, let me just talk to you about Thursday. Thursday, I like to think of, all right, Sunday, day of Messianic presentation, triumphal entry. City welcomes him. Monday and Tuesday, given Sunday, why Friday? Monday and Tuesday, day of Messianic Jesus proclaims the truth concerning himself. That's what I'm after there. Besides, I needed a P. But, but you know, I need a P for proclamation. But, but I, it really does kind of fit. So, so Monday and Tuesday, deliberate days of messianic proclamation. And he leaves the city with this decision. It's me or the Pharisees. Now, Wednesday, there's a lot of preparation going on. Thursday afternoon, it is the day when the Passover lamb is to be slain. And so in Luke chapter 22 and verse 6, you know what? Let me just tell you the story. But you can go to Luke 22. It's right there. In Luke 22 and verse 7, I'm sorry. Luke says that Jesus sent Peter and John to prepare for the Passover. 
And when he did, you remember this? They said, well, where do you want us to prepare? And you remember this. Jesus said, go into town. You'll see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. He'll take you to a home with a large upper room. Folks, I know, and I, people get upset with me. It's kind of silly, I think, to get upset with me. So there. But uh, I know some people will say, well, that's omniscience. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Listen, I think, in other words, Jesus says, go to prepare. They say, where? And he says, well, I hadn't thought about that, but I'm getting something here. You're going to see a man who's going to find Now, what's that man doing there? That doesn't make any sense. The fact is, Jesus had set this up. I think he had probably, on that silent Wednesday, sent a messenger, say, there's a woman in town. She has a large home. Uh, she's a follower of mine. Ask if I can use her upper room, if it's okay, her cataluma, then have a servant in a certain place. Why? What is Jesus doing, folks? He's keeping the place secret from Judas. If Judas knew where this place was, the soldiers would have been there waiting, and you wouldn't have had the upper room in Gethsemane. And Thursday is twice a day of preparation. In the upper room, you have, preparation, you, have, you have preparation for the disciples, and then Jesus takes himself to Gethsemane, and you have that season of prayer. And I want to get there. So very quickly, let me just walk you through it. I'd love to spend more time with it. But Jesus does take his disciples into a... And you know, I'm telling you something. It's, it's very likely, in my mind, that, that Jesus' disciples, many of them, had never been in a home this nice. This is a beautiful home. I could go on and on, but if you've got a large upper room that is deliberately set aside, and, and these have been discovered in the Western Hill in this exact place, we know a lot about these rooms and so on, but the point is, it must have been stunning to the apostles. You know, normally what would have done all around, oh, I'd love to talk about this, but there are these hills all the way around Jerusalem, and people would come with their tents, and they would just they would pitch their tent. Because the rabbis had said, Moses said that you had to eat the Passover at the temple. The rabbis had said what that means is you have to be eyesight. Matter of fact, some of them argue you have to be within eyesight of the smoke. Have you ever, you look at a picture of the temple, a drawing, a drawing. Somebody is just representing the temple in Jesus' day or in Solomon's day. The smoke from the altar will be going straight up to God. No matter what the wind, and I don't think that's true, but they believe that that the smoke, because these are the sacrifices that are ascending to God. So no matter what the wind, what the rain, that smoke always goes straight up to God. Now, that's what they believe. But anyway, the point is, I think the disciples would have anticipated they'd do that. Pitch a tent somewhere, and you had to go inside, have a tent, go inside, keep the Passover, just had to be on those hills so you could see the temple. Jesus takes them to a huge, and the, this is the upper city. This is the western hill. This is the, the gated community. This is where the wealthy people live. And, and you know it because of this huge upper room. Well, at any rate, he takes his disciples into this upper room, and he keeps the Passover with them. In the midst of the Passover celebration, no, that's not true. After the Passover, it says the supper being ended. So he keeps the Passover. And then, as they are gathered around that table, lose da Vinci, they are, they are, they are reclining around a three-sided table, I believe. But the point is that it's not, we say, 13 guys on the far side of the table facing the artist. You know, that's probably not the way they did it. But, but the point is that uh, Jesus all of a sudden says, the hand of the betrayer is with me at the table. Now, I want you to think for just a fleeting moment what must be going through Judas's head. He has a cohort of Roman soldiers 
waiting to arrest Jesus. He has the whole Sanhedrin ready for an illegal nocturnal trial of Jesus. And he has, he has, they have induced Pilate to bring his judicial apparatus outside the city, or outside the praetorium, I'm sorry. And none of this could happen until because they didn't know where Jesus was going to keep the Passover. So Judas is doing a slow burn. And he's sitting there, and the Bible says, by the way, that when Jesus said, the hand of the traitor is with me at the table, everybody began to ask, is it I? Who could it be? And Matthew tells us that Judas leaned over to Jesus and whispered to him, Master, is it I? And Jesus said, it is. So now all pretense is off, and sin makes you stupid. And Judas had been harboring his wicked heart. You thought I was going to do that. His heart of disbelief for a long time. And, 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 so, and Jesus says, Judas gets up, makes an excuse, and goes off to fetch the Sanhedrinists. Right? Now Jesus begins to preach. And I want you to go quickly to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is actually earlier than that. But I just think it's so important to background what we're going to see in just a moment with the incident in John 12 and about, I think it's uh, 27, I think. Let's check. Uh, well, a little earlier. Uh, right here, John 12, verse 23. Now, I've got to tell you this quickly. Uh, All right, let me just tell you the story and then get down to verse uh, 27. Folks, let me back. To, uh, I'm, uh, so I'm doing two things here. One, we want to catch the drama of the Passion Week. Sunday, Messianic presentation, everybody excited. Monday and Tuesday, uh, proclamation, oh, maybe not if it's going to cost us that, right? Tuesday night, a plot is laid in place to have Jesus arrested in connection with the Passover, Thursday afternoon, Jesus dispatches Peter and John, very careful to keep the place secret. So now later on, Jesus comes from Bethany and brings the, the disciples and leads them up to this upper room, uh, this beautiful home on the western hill. He keeps the Passover. The hand of the betrayer is with me. Judas goes out to fetch the soldiers and the Sanhedrinists. Meanwhile, Jesus, let's go back to that map real quickly, Meanwhile, Jesus begins to teach. And uh, as he teaches in John 14, all of a sudden he says, John 14, 31, and by the way, it's very late on Thursday, getting on to midnight. His disciples undoubtedly would have anticipated just laying back and sleeping there. But all of a sudden Jesus says, John 14, verse 31, Arise, let us go hence. Let's get out of here. Jesus knows about how much time it's going to take Judas to go fetch those Sanhedrinists. Here, on the map, here is the place of the Last Supper. Here is where the Sanhedrin, where Judas had, had to go to fetch the Sanhedrinists, way up here at the Fortress Antonia. So Judas is going to make his way all the way up here. Where would Judas bring the soldiers? Bring them back to the upper room, right? That's where he left Jesus. So now he makes his way back. Meanwhile, John 14, 31, Jesus said to the other 11, we've got to get out of here. So he makes his way all the way over to a place called Gethsemane. You can see it on the map there. And all along the way, he's teaching. This is when he, John 14 is in the upper room. John 15, you are the, I'm the vine, you are the branches. That's along the way. John 16, it's expedient for that I go away. If I don't come, the Spirit will not come. That's along the way. 
John 17, that marvelous prayer which Jesus prays for his disciples and for us. That's along the way. And then in John 18, now watch this, folks. Uh, I'm in such trouble. Here is the brook Kedron. Can you see that? In other words, east of the city of Jerusalem, and here the Temple Mount, is, is, is the brook Kedron. Uh, the brook Kedron, you remember I mentioned to you a minute ago that hy- hygiene, cleanliness, was a huge issue in the temple. You had all this, and they, they were, it, was, it was honored. But there were these huge washings where they, were kind of, they had viaducts and, and channels and pools and fountains and so on, and they were constantly washing the grounds. And there were a number of viaducts underneath the Temple Mount where everything was drained out into the Brook Kedron. And then it would drain because the Brook Kedron becomes, interestingly enough, the Nahal Kedron, which is a riverbed that makes its way all the way to the Dead Sea. So all of this refuse was channeled down into that salt-laden sea, which turns out is God's sewage, uh, uh, a sewage treatment plant for the Temple Mount. Does that make sense to you? So... Uh, but at, at Passover season, that brook would run red with the blood of sacrificial animals. So now John tells us that Jesus leaves the upper room in John 14, 31, teaches all the way, and then John 18, 1 says this, that Jesus stepped across the brook Kedron. Now that brook is running red with the blood of animals, all of which are just a picture of what's going to happen to him. It's a, it's a poignant scene. And he goes out to a garden. And there, of course, he is going to pray. Now, we're going to be done with, uh, you're going to look at that very briefly and be done, but I want you to go back, first of all, to John 12. And let me tell you where I'm taking you here, folks. And I say there are two things going on here, because one, I really want you to understand the drama and the sequence and the chronology and so on, the unfolding story. Amen and amen. We're working at that. But, folks, this scene is, this scene of Gethsemane, I, I want you to contemplate it for just a few minutes here. You know, uh, it, is, it is, artists of every age and with various media have learned, and in our day, rather disgustingly almost, to depict physical suffering. So physical suffering, slaughter, and so on. Artists can draw a picture of that for us. How do you depict spiritual suffering? How do you represent on the pages of a book Deep spiritual suffering. I think it's Gethsemane. And I don't think we can be fair. I don't think we'll understand Golgotha unless Gethsemane gets a hold of us. Now, know this. And folks, the Bible could not be more explicit and clear about this. Even though some people, I think, very superficially and incorrectly take some measure of umbrage with this. But the reality is, as the cross drew near terrified our Lord. It filled him with the most gut-wrenching terror. But it was not, we're going to talk about this in the last hour, but it was not the prospect of the physical suffering. It was the prospect of being made sin for you and me. Jesus, think about it, could only imagine this. He's never endured it. Folks, listen. Dave and I were talking about this. I started the book last night. And I have learned, rather lately in my spiritual life, 
to just bottomlessly cherish the reality of a triune Godhead. Because you know what it means? It means it is God's nature to exist in relationship. He knows relationship. He cherishes relationship. He wants relationship with us. But think about the relationship between the persons of a trinity. We don't understand the trinity. There's mystery there, but we know this, that God has revealed so clearly and so delightfully that he, God, this eternal God, exists in relationship from eternity. And these three persons of one God, there is, I mean, even though, listen, I always say, if you got the water, steam, ice thing going on in your head, knock it off for heaven's sake. So it's a, and, 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 and the reason that, that none of that will work is because there is no analogy. There's no analogy in the physical or moral universe. So what do you do? You bow the knee to everything God says. And what do we know for sure? There's one God. And we, oh, I'd love to talk to you about it. But the point is that even though we can't, we can't dissect, we can't get into the ontology, of, we know this, that there is an infinite, eternal oneness a pure, delightful companionship, a love between the persons of the Trinity. Folks, whatever that is, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why is that? It's, it's unimaginable. And, and, and it's, th- th- there's nothing ontological here. The Trinity's not being dissolved, but the Father is going to judicially disfellowship the Son. You know, that's just as painful for the Father as it is for the Son. That's what fills Jesus with terror. And, and, and you see it so powerfully in Gethsemane, but I think that you see it the more powerfully against John chapter 12. Now, I'm going to tell you the story because I'm late, but in John chapter 12, it's probably Tuesday, either Monday or Tuesday of the Passion Week, and some Greeks come and they say, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus, now this is on Tuesday, begins to talk about dying. He's talking about his own death. Remember, he says, unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it can't. I think he's encouraging himself. I know this has to happen. But the contemplation of it just overwhelms him. And as he's talking about his own death, you have this strange scene in John 12 and verse 27 where Jesus kind of breaks away from the multitude. And I picture him, it's almost like a Shakespearean soliloquy, you know, where the actor steps to the front of the stage and steps away from the drama and looks to the heavens. And you have Jesus, he's talking about his death. My soul is troubled. I mean, he's physically affected by the contemplation of what's to happen. And he prays this. He says, he looks to the heavens, and oh, this is so noble. He says, my soul is troubled. Verse 27, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But he says, no, I can't do that. It was for this hour, it was for this purpose I came to this hour. And so, folks, and God help you. God deliver you from this kind of soul-wrenching choice, this level of despair. And I always say, if you contemplate, I hope it hasn't happened. Maybe it has. But if you contemplate what might in your life bring you to such a sense of total despair that you would wonder if you were interested in going on, it won't have to do with health. It won't have to do with money. It'll have to do with relationship. We are made in the image of God. There's nothing more precious. There's nothing more life-defining and sustaining than relationship. Do you understand that? And now Jesus contemplates that and he says, 
my point is that he says, what shall I say? Shall I pray to say to me? I can't do that. And then he prays this prayer. Father, you'll be glorified. <sighs> the bottomless nobility of that. You hear him, he's saying, Father, I don't know how I'm going to do this. It's on, it's, it, it, it just it, it, it cripples me to think about. But I'm just asking, you be glorified. Now, take that with you. And, and of course, by the way, I love it, where a voice comes from heaven. Do you realize how close, how intimate the relationship is between the incarnate Son and the heavenly dwelling Father? And now the Father breaks protocol. And he says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That's the promise Jesus took to the cross. That's what strengthened him. My father is going to be glorified. Now, you take that with you. Let's just jump down to John 13. So now we're going to pick the story up. Jesus is in the upper room. This is after the foot washing, of course, as John tells the story. But in John 13, uh, in verse 31. As a matter of fact, look here. In verse 30, it's talking about Judas. Having received the piece of bread, the morsel, he went out. He went out to fetch the Sanhedrinists. It was night. And when he had gone out, now remember the promise that God had made, the Father in heaven had made? I have glorified it. And now as Judas leaves, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. You hear what he's saying? The game is afoot. The drama has begun. Judas has gone to fetch the Sanhedrinists. Now, let me just say this. Jesus then teaches for a time, gets up, and he takes his disciples out to Gethsemane. And when he gets to Gethsemane, you'll remember this, he took eight of them. Uh, he took 11 of them. I think he took them into a cave that's part of the, part of the installation there where they often stay, John 18, 2 makes that. By the way, John 18 really helps us because we might wonder how Judas would know to go back to, after he had gotten to the upper room to go out to Gethsemane. John 18, 2 says Judas knew the place because Jesus often stayed there. So he thinks, well, there's no other place it could be in the middle of the night, 12 people, so he goes out. Meanwhile, Jesus has taken the, 12, the 11 into the cave. He had said, my soul is heavy in me unto death. Please watch and pray. And then he took three of them into the garden. And three times. Does this not mean something? Jesus prays on Thursday night the very prayer he had refused to pray on Tuesday afternoon. What shall I say? Deliver me from this hour? I can't say that. Thursday night, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. But he never stops there. Not my will, but thine be done. The heaviness. And you know, Luke adds two comments. Number one, he says, Jesus sweat great drops of blood. There are very few. Jesus, okay, I'm rocking your world here, was a stonemason. He'd spent 18 years. He was, it, 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 it bespeaks a remarkable virility that he was able to survive the kind of anguish that is represented when you sweat great drops of blood. But Luke also says, and this takes my heart away, my breath away, that the Father sent angels. Now, folks, there's only one other time when the Father sends angels. Then, Luke, the temptation narrative, Luke 4, Matthew 4, Mark 1, 
But at that occasion, it was because it was by reason of a 40-day fast that Jesus found himself at such a physical extremity that he couldn't care for himself, and angels came and for several weeks just nursed him back to health. But then it was by reason of 40 days of eating nothing. Now it's by reason of the simple of the contemplation of what he's about to endure for you and me. And I think it's fair to say that not only was Jesus terrified by the prospect of that separation, that payment that he was going to make, he was cripplingly. I don't know what those angels did. I pick, picture him maybe just picking him up, and it's with angelic help that he staggers out of the garden. But now he comes out of the, he wakes the others, and he goes, comes out of the garden there in the valley of Cadron, and he can look to the south, and here comes Judas and a cohort of soldiers and the Sanhedrinists. And you know that Peter takes out his sword. We'll talk about this later. But uh, Jesus says, put your sword away. Now listen, what have you prayed three times? Oh, folks, I can't walk by Gethsemane. What had he prayed three times? If there be any way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will. I'm going to entrust myself to you. And now he says to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that my father's given? That ought to just take our breath away. Shall I not drink? And Jesus goes to the cross trusting his Father, just like you and I, in whatever vicissitude of life. We have to trust the Father. And Jesus is arrested and taken back up to the western hill. And now there is going to unfold a series of trials that will eventuate in his being on a cross by the next morning, about 9 o'clock. I'm going to say one more time. Sunday, a day of messianic presentation, very deliberate. Monday and Tuesday, given Sunday, why Friday? Monday and Tuesday, proclamation, you make a choice, the Pharisees or me. Thursday, Jesus in preparation, a day of preparation. He prepares his disciples with all those marvelous discourses, but now he goes to the garden and prepares his own soul spirit. Jesus had no more spiritual resources than you and I. He moved. You know, by the way, I said to you that I think the reason the whole business of, of, of the man with the pitcher and so on is Jesus keeping it secret from Judas. And when he gets into the upper room, you remember he said to his disciples, you don't know with what desire I've desired to keep this feast. I think the point is primarily I've moved heaven and earth to make sure that the, the, the Romans wouldn't be waiting for us because he knew how desperate it was, how desperately important it was to spend that time with his disciples and then spend that time in the garden with his father. Amen and amen? I have taken certain liberties with ish. But, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But uh, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll put the piece back together. We can take, we can take a little more time if we need it. Father... Again, Father, we are staggered, and uh, we, are, we are twice staggered. We're staggered at, at the narrative before us, and then we're staggered at the marvelous, bottomless mystery that lies behind this narrative, the mystery uh, that is revealed as far as it can take us, but the mystery which staggers up to this, this marvelous, eternal relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And Father, we thank you that Jesus was willing to complete those that thrice-spoken prayer, not my will, but thine be done. And he followed, he, he trusted himself to, to you. And he 
went to the cross, and we are the eternal beneficiaries of that willingness on his part. We worship you in his name. Amen.